You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, welcome to uh, another class. Oh, I like some of the people who know how to use the little, uh, what are they called? Uh, yeah, little ex- reactions. Yeah, that's what they're called, the reactions. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to uh, start our new session, and um, I'm looking forward to this. And I thought I'd begin with um, just reading a passage of scripture um, that I think will frame our time together. And the, and the passage is in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It's funny. Uh, today, I actually preached a message. It sounds weird. I, I preached a message yesterday. And I preached a message today that are all being recorded for other days. But I preached a message on Hebrews for the town center group. And so uh, that was uh, the passage I was looking at today. In Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then in verse 13, it says this. It refers to the number of people that um, had seen the promise, but but had died. And, And in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. God of all grace, we thank you for your grace, and I thank you for, this, uh, for the gift of technology that we can gather together. And I pray that you would speak um, through me. Um, we pray uh, that you would uh, guide our conversation tonight. And we pray as much as is possible with the limitations of technology that we would be able to uh, connect with one another. That's our desire. So we lift tonight to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, um, we looked at, um, well, we looked at Pilgrim's Progress. And in doing so, we looked at the importance of the cross. Um, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, when uh, Christian, the main character, encounters the cross, uh, that is a turning point in his life. But we also notice that he encounters the cross pretty early on in um, in his journey. And the rest of his the rest of the book is just playing out the Christian life. And what uh, Bunyan is making, what he's saying is that the uh, the Christian life is uh, is more than conversion. It's it's ongoing conversion. It's 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 the story of sanctification. It's a it's the story of our journey to our heavenly home. And um, I love in uh, in Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to show you. Um, I'm going to bring up a, a screen. Okay, and I'll. Uh, Maybe I'll follow along here. So let's see if this works okay. I think it'll work. I'll share this. And we'll go here. And here. All right. So does that look okay? All right. Um, okay, so... We're going to be talking a little bit about pilgrimage. One of the things is, uh, this is a great line from, um, from Bunyan himself at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. He says, he who would be valiant against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. That's what John Bunyan says. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about pilgrimage. And what pil- pilgrimage is all about. Um, what is a pilgrimage? A pilgrimage is a lot of different things. A pilgrimage, a pilgrim, is a person who uh, journeys, who, uh, who goes through life, um, who covers lots of time and he covers lots of space. A pilgrim is also a person who travels in a place that's not their home. And that's why I began with that passage in... Um, in Hebrews, because in, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that, um, that we are strangers and exiles, and that this land that we live in is a strange and uncomfortable land at times, and, um, 
and, and, and that's okay. That's part of the Christian life. We also know that a, a pilgrim is a person whose life is heading somewhere. It's not just this endless journeying. It's not a wandering. It, is, um, it has a destination. And um, the other thing is a person, yeah, again, is a, whose life is heading somewhere. And so a pilgrimage, if for you and I to be on a pilgrimage, it requires us to do a number of different things. One, it requires us to be uncomfortable. Because as we make ourselves, as we make our way through life, um, we have to recognize that uh, that we're gonna that God's gonna bring us into different places that it's not always easy to uh, well, it's not always easy to uh, to make our way in these time in these places. Uh, but pilgrimage is a central metaphor for the Christian life. But it's a very difficult thing because God calls us in places that again we we don't see coming. And so when we end up in a place that we don't uh, we don't expect, we have to recognize that. Uh, to be a pilgrim and to be on a pilgrimage is to be patient because we find ourselves in circumstances that are strange, that are foreign, that um, we don't quite fit in. And so we need to learn how to listen deeply. Um, wherever we find ourselves, wherever we find ourselves in the Christian life, we need to be patient and we need to listen deeply. I was um, uh, listening to a guy named Stanley Harawas this, this past week. And he's a theologian, and he talked about the uh, challenge of the pandemic. And he says one of the things that's challenging him the most is the need to be patient. And I totally get that because right from the get-go, uh, my tendency is being uh, leaning towards impatience. Um, I want it to end. I want things to go back to the way things were. I want us to gather on Tuesday nights. I want, I want things to be comfortable, to be recognizable. And uh, it's interesting, um, Haravas is saying, yeah, he says, that's a big challenge in, the, in, the, in these uh, times is the call to be patient, recognizing that these are the times that God has placed us. And so we need to you know, navigate our way in these times. The other thing about um, a pilgrimage is that uh, we're called to be curious that wherever God calls us in life, um, rather than resenting where we are, which is easy to do, especially in these circumstances, rather than resenting our time, we need to, uh, need to be curious and to say, okay, what is going on? What, what is the lay of the land? What is happening in and around us? And also to be curious to understand, understand what's going on. When I, lived in, uh, when I lived in China, um, there were two kinds of pilgrims. <laughs> well, they're not, one wasn't really a pilgrim. Uh, There's two kinds of visitors, two kinds of uh, foreigners. There were those who were curious and there were those who were just resentful. And I remember uh, encountering a number of foreigners and they would just, they would grumble and they'd say, oh, I hate China, China's dirty, or, or I don't like this habit, and I don't understand the language, and I don't like the food, and I'm like, dude, go home. Um, you know, there's lots of things I, that was quite uncomfortable for me, but I was just really curious. I was just so fascinated by a culture so different from, from ourselves. And so um, to be a pilgrim means to be curious. And to recognize sometimes we're dragged into situations, dragged into places that we're, we never really saw coming. And so I like the way this one person puts it, to be pilgrims unaware, dragged along by the winding chains of time. Um, and so, again, uh, pilgrimage is a key metaphor for the Christian life. And what I'd like to do is, um, is to look at uh, one fella who can teach us a lot about pilgrimage, and that is our man, St. Patrick. And so I'm just going to come back and uh, stop sharing for a second because I knew we are going to be talking. Um, so Patrick, um, let me ask you this. Before, before uh, we look at Patrick, I want to ask you this question. If you could live anywhere in the world, Anywhere in the world, um, and consider it okay, like non-pandemic world, okay, um, you know, before or after the pandemic. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you want to live, and why? Okay, so I'm going to break you into groups, and I want you to answer the question: If you can live anywhere in the world, where would you want to live, and and tell us why? Somebody, uh, unmute yourself and tell me where would you like to live and why. I'm just curious. British Columbia. Anywhere in particular? 
like Prince George? Uh, <laughs> I got off the plane once when it was 40 below and I was wearing nylons and a skirt and a okay. suit. And I had my boss's briefcase. You want to live in Prince George at 40 below? No. No. So somewhere nice in BC. Like when we I think like BC, the lower mainland. Yeah. Okay, good. Anywhere else? Anyone else? I said I would choose Israel. Israel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that would be, yeah, that would be, that would be certainly a fascinating place to live. Yeah. Oxford. Oxford. Oh, I heard that. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to live in Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, I'd be all over that. Cambridge is probably more, I'd like to live there instead. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, Patrick. Now, I hope you noticed, maybe some of you noticed, but take a look. <laughs> Love it. You like it? It's Ireland. So, so this is what uh, Hannah got for me from Ireland. Now, I shouldn't actually be wearing this because our man Patrick is not Irish. He's not Irish. He's British. And so let me give you a little bit of background to, to Patrick. Um, so... Patrick, his years are um, probably the late 300s up until the mid 400s. We're not entirely sure when he died, how old he was, but uh, we think he was born probably around uh, 389. And so his, his years overlap with uh, guys like Augustine and, and things like that. Now, if you know your church history, you'll know a little bit. Let um, me give you a little bit of background. 410 AD, 4, 410 AD. Something terrible happens. These barbarians storm Rome, sack the city, rape, pillage, and that is a 9-11 moment of the Western of Western Europe. Um, it is a 9-11 moment of Western Europe because nobody thought that this could ever happen to Rome. Nobody thought it could happen. And so it's a real turning point. And from that moment onwards, Ro uh, the Roman Empire um, and Christianity, uh, because um, you had an emperor who became a Christian at one point, um, the empire is in a lot of trouble and it falls into these dark ages. It's really dark. And, um, and you have barbarians basically attacking left and right everywhere, all over the place. And uh, while this is happening, Rome has to kind of pull back to defend itself. And so they start pulling their troops back from the, from the outer reaches of the empire and they had to pull their uh, troops out of Britain. Well, once they pull them out of Britain, it makes Britain a little open to vulnerable to attack. And that's, that's going to play a, the background to our man, Patrick. Now, one more thing that you need to know is um, one of the guys that uh, Patrick or one of the groups that Patrick is going to have a lot to do with um, are the Celts. Now, who are the Celts? Well, if you... Here, I'll give you an idea of who the Celts are. Hey, hang on. Here, here's a picture of the Celts. You ready? I'll give you an idea. Uh, the Celts, the Celts. Here's the Celts. There he is. Um, and that's uh, Asterix, right? Uh, you got the Celts. The Celts were, um, they were a pagan group. They were on the, the, you found them at first in France, what is modern day France. They end up um, being driven into um, modern-day uh, Ireland, and, um, and they're stuck there. Um, but they, they, they develop there, and they're a tribal group and very, very pagan. Very, very pagan. And um, they were a society that, uh, again, it was tribal. They, were, they loved violence, but they loved storytelling. In fact, we know that uh, among the, uh, the Celts, about 25% of them, uh, were professional storytellers. Can you imagine being a professional story? And 25% of the population being professional storytellers. But what that tells us, though, is that uh, the Celts were very, very good at passing story from generation to generation. Now, it's fascinating to know that when they tell, when they pass the um, stories from generation to generation, that the stories are passed on verbatim like without hardly any changes at all and so once they get hold of christianity and they start telling the stories of who jesus is it gets passed on 
rigorously from generation to generation. You combine that with a word um, and their love for God's word, and it's, it's quite, quite powerful. Uh, but they are violent. They are a, a violent group. Uh, they're pagan. Uh, they have this uh, fascination um, with uh, the human head, which is kind of strange. But uh, it had this idea that um, if you could defeat your enemy, uh, once you defeat your enemy, you, 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 you cut off their head, um, and then you hold on to their skull, and they, you, there's stories of you'd make cups out of, you know, you make a cup out of your, your enemy's skull and things like that. And if you can take your enemy's head, um, you would have their soul, you would have their power. And so the more heads, if you want to get ahead in life, you would have to steal their heads and you become quite powerful. And the other thing is that if you were a leader and you had any physical ailment, any physical, uh, something that went wrong with your body, then, um, um, then you'd be, it would be open season on, on removing you from leadership. It was a pretty interesting group. Um, Patrick, uh, against this background, we have our man Patrick coming on the scene. And Patrick is one of the most remarkable, he is one of the most remarkable um, missionaries in the history of the church. And um, let me just uh, share a little bit about Patrick then. Um, Patrick's story begins um, with captivity. I'm just going to exit out of our screen sharing here. Um, it, it begins with, with captivity. And so in our understanding of Patrick, we, we know that Patrick basically wrote two pieces of writing. That's it, just two. Uh, one is uh, his confession, and the other one is a letter he wrote to this king, to this tribal king, a guy named Croticus. And in, in confession, it says, it says this, the, the, uh, Patrick's confession begins with these words, I am Patrick a sinner, most unlearned, the least of all the faithful, and utterly despised by many. My father was Calpornius, a deacon, which is interesting, son of Hotitus, a priest of the village of uh, Benavim Tabernae. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. He had a country seat nearby, and there I was taken captive. I was 16 years old. And I did not know the true God. And I was taken into captivity to Ireland with many thousands of people, and deservedly so, because we had turned away from God and did not keep his commandments. So right from the beginning, we, Patrick's telling the story. And he says when he was just a young man, well, a couple of things that are interesting. He talks about his dad. Um, he talks about his relatives who um, had some position within the church, which tells us that he comes out of... Um, a place where Christianity had reached. Now you have to realize, Patrick, he's born in what, 389 AD? And so you already you can tell at least one generation before Patrick, Christianity had arrived in Britain, which is quite, quite fascinating, I think, that uh, it, it had reached there that early. So Patrick, um, you know, again, the Roman soldiers, uh, the Roman Empire is pulling back, and so now it's open season on, uh, on Britain. And so you got these barbarians that come along, they are Celts, most likely, uh, Picts, um, and they, uh, they invade um, Britain, this one part of Britain, or they raid part of Britain, and they, they take thousands of captives, and they take them over to what we would call Ireland today. And um, Patrick, as a 16-year-old boy, um, gets thrown on board and uh, taken over. And uh, he's in slavery, and he's in slavery probably in the early 400s. And uh, he has this interesting job as a slave. He's, he's sold to a very cruel warrior chief. Um, and you imagine that Patrick, you know, being dragged to this warrior chief's uh, compound. And on, on top of all the uh, spikes around the, uh, the compound, you see human heads, right? Again, the preoccupation with the human heads. And um, Patrick's given a job. And the job he was given was to look after the pigs, uh, look after the uh, pigs and the, uh, the flocks of, uh, of this warrior chief. And, um, and Patrick's all alone. And this is what he says in his, in his uh, confession. He says, but after I came to Ireland, every day I had to tend sheep. And many times a day I prayed. The love of God and his fear came to me more and more. And my faith was strengthened. 
and my spirit was moved so that in a single day I would say as many as a hundred prayers and almost as many in the night. And this even when I was staying in the woods and on the mountain. And I used to get up for prayer before daylight, through snow, through frost, through rain. And I felt no harm. And there was no sloth in me. And I now see because the spirit within me was, was, was fervent. And so he spends day after day, he's all alone. He's all alone with the sheep. He's up in the mountains. And it's interesting. So he must have had some teaching because he at least knew how to pray. And he's praying and he's praying and he's praying. And this prayer begins to form his life. And so um, he spends, you know, these, these very difficult circumstances um, and his faith starts to deepen, which I think is kind of interesting. And maybe it's a stretch, but um, here you have Patrick in forced isolation. And notice that he doesn't binge on Netflix. No, <laughs> notice that what he does, he's in isolation, right? And so what does he do in isolation? He prays. And I don't know. That's a real challenge to me in, in isolation and in these, in these strange times. It's, it's easy to, to, uh, to just waste away our time and to while away our, 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 our hours. And, um, and I wonder when all is said and done, when the pandemic is over, if we look back at this time, we're like, boy, did I ever miss an opportunity? I don't know. That's, that's kind of what's been going on in my mind. Uh, so Patrick, I mean, he prays and he prays and he prays. And um, it's interesting. And then one night something happens. One night, this is what he says. And then one night I heard in my sleep, I heard a voice saying to me, it is well that you fast. Soon you will go to your own country. And after that, a short while, I heard a voice saying to me, Patrick, your ship is ready. And it was not near, but at a distance of perhaps 200 miles. And I had never been there before, nor did I know a living soul there. But then I took, I took to flight. I left the man with whom I had stayed for six years. So he's probably around 22 years old now. And I went in the strength of God who directed my way uh, to my good. And I feared nothing until I came to the ship. And so in the middle of that, so he gets this, this vision, um, Patrick, go, your ship is ready. And he goes and, uh, and God directs him 200 miles and he finds a ship. And um, when he finds the ship, the ship is filled with these, these pagan sailors who had these Irish wolfhounds that they were taking to the continent. And they see Patrick, and Patrick's like, uh, "Hey guys, <laughs> can I can I get a get a get a ride?" And they're like, "No, go away." And he's like, "Oh man, okay." And so he walks away, and but then he prays. He said, "Oh Lord, you know, you called me all this way." And then the guy calls back to him. I guess he realized Patrick was maybe a bit of a shepherd. He can maybe look after the wolfhounds. He says, "All right, come on board." And so, um, so Patrick comes on the ship, and uh, it's interesting. We know they're pagans because they ask him to do something. They ask him to do something. You know what they ask him to do? <laughs> he goes, uh, I went to pray. And before the end of my prayer, I heard one of them shouting behind me, come, hurry. We'll take you on in good faith and make friends with us in whatever way you like. And so on that day, this is what he says. I refuse to suck their breasts, <laughs> which I'm guessing is a pagan ritual. And it seemed like a good idea not to partake. Um, but he doesn't do it because it's, it, it, there's a pagan meaning to it. But it's just kind of a strange, strange line. After three days, they reach shore. And we think they arrive um, on the coast of modern-day France. And uh, we have some good idea because they arrive there and they said there's, there's no vegetation. And we know around the time, I think it was around uh, 407 AD, that that part of France had just been um, destroyed and burned over by some barbarian tribes. And so when they arrived, he describes the landscape and it sounds like it's around that time and the, and the dates would fit pretty good. And uh, they arrive, so there's no food. And the, uh, the head of the ship says to Patrick, he says, well, you say your God is, is the God of the universe. Well, we're hungry, there's no food. What, what are we gonna do? Um, why don't you pray for us? As you can see, we're suffering from hunger. And so, I said to them, he says, okay. He says, nothing's impossible for God. May God send food. And with the help of God, he says, suddenly a herd of pigs appeared on the road before their eyes. And so they had food to eat. 
Um, and then they offered more sacrifice and they said, Patrick, why don't you join us in our sacrifice? And Patrick, ah, I know what you're up to. This is a pagan thing. He's like, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, that carries on. Now, what's frustrating about old Patrick is that he leaves out some pretty important details. So we know Patrick says, okay, so I was on the continent. And then he says, after many years, and we're like, what did you do? Doesn't say. So we don't know if he went back to Britain. We don't know. We know he eventually gets back to Britain, but there's there's these missing years and there's all sorts of speculation about where Patrick may have gone and where he didn't go. But honestly, we just don't know. Um, later on, we do know. And then he says, after a few more years, again, that's not helping Patrick. Um, he ends up back in Britain. Now, can you imagine if you're his family? You think Patrick's done. You think he's dead. Yeah, he's taken away when he's 16. And now he's, well, we don't know how old he is. He's maybe 25, 26 years old. Comes back, walks into the village, and the village sees him. And, um, and they're like, Patrick, you're back. And, and he says, yeah, boy, that was, that was pretty scary. And then uh, everything's good. And you think, you know, the, the movie credits will roll and be like, wow, that was quite the adventure, Patrick. Except while he's back in Britain, something happens. He has a dream. And this is what happens in the dream. He says, at night, a vision of a man came to me. And the, the man's name was Victoricus, coming, as it were, from Ireland with countless letters. And he gave me one of them. And I read the opening words of the letter, which were, the voice of the Irish. And as I read the beginning of the letter, I thought at the same moment I heard their voice. And the voice cried out as with one mouth, we ask thee, boy. I should do it with an Irish accent. Oh, we ask thee, boy, to come and walk among us once more. Right, because they're all from Ireland. Um, and so he wakes up and, um, and he's like, what, what is going on? And basically, he has this vision and yet another vision. And in both of them, um, there's this picture of these, these letters and the voice of the Irish and saying, Patrick, come and come back to Ireland. Walk among us once more. Can you imagine? I mean, he just escaped from Ireland. And now, now he's being called to go back. And Patrick, he decides to go back. Now, you have to realize, Ireland is barely touched by Christianity. There may have been one missionary that went before Patrick, a guy named Palladius. Uh, we're not sure what, how much impact that he had. Um, Ireland is a dangerous place. It's not just dangerous if he goes back and sees his old boss. Hey, remember me? I left. Um, it's not just that. It's just Ireland is thoroughly pagan. And it's run by these demonic forces. Um, and And who are the... Who are, the, who are the priests of the demonic forces? What are they called? Anybody know? Druids. The Druids, yes, the Druids. And uh, the Druids, I mean, they're not, don't think of Getafix from uh, Asterix or anything like that. He's not this cute, you know, you know kind of cauldron, magic potion-making fella. Um, they, they were dark. There's a lot of demonic stuff that they were involved in. And um, they were worked hand in glove with the um, these tribal, tri tribal chiefs. And Patrick's being called to go back into this. And so he's going to go. And uh, it's not an easy route. There's people, you know, you can imagine his family going, so wh wh where are you going to go? You're, you're going back? Which, again, was strange. And then there's other people who said, Patrick, you can't go back. You can't possibly you're not trained you're not a you're not ready to be that kind of a leader and uh, patrick says i have to go god's calling me and so he goes back and he's smart though because you, you figure he, while he was over there he picked up some of the language uh he understood many of the customs and so when he goes back he goes back and he fashions himself fashions himself almost like a druid uh he looks kind of like a druid but he's going in the in the name and in the power of jesus christ and he goes back and he's smart. He goes right to the, the tribal chiefs and he wins them to Christ. And if you win the tribal chief to Christ, the entire village would follow suit. That was the way they, it was a very hierarchical structure. And Patrick was ruthless. And there's all these stories of these incredible power encounters between Patrick and some king and Patrick and some tribal leader, Patrick and some druid. And uh, God, 
you know, protects him. And, and that's where you get that, uh, the famous uh, breastplate of St. Patrick, right? Some of you may have heard of this where it goes, um, I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. Um, I rise today through the strength of Christ and his baptism. You know, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above me, Christ below me. Well, that was Patrick's life. And he really, really lived in, 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 in that reality. And so um, Patrick, he ends up uh, going back and having a remarkable influence on spreading Christianity throughout uh, Ireland. And much of Ireland, much of Ireland gets converted to Christianity uh, through Patrick, through one man. And so this is, you know, so Patrick has nothing really to do with green beer and, you know, some parades in Boston. I mean, it's, it, he is a remarkable um, a remarkable missionary evangelist and he has he has guts he is and you figure given what he's come out of and what god has done in his life he's not afraid of anything and this becomes one of the characteristics of celtic uh, christianity it's very courageous and so um there's a story of a of this one tribal leader named Kuroticus. and what does he do patrick's holding a well he's having a baptism service Everybody's dressed in white and he's about to baptize. And he ends up baptizing thousands of people in his life. But this is one baptism service. Well, what does Kuroticus do? He's like, hey, here's a bunch of people in white robes. They would make good slaves. And he basically goes in and kills a bunch of them and, and re- takes the rest of them away as slaves. And Patrick hears about this and he's livid. And he writes a letter to Kuroticus. And you have to read it because he's got so much octane. What does he say? He says, ravenous wolves have gulped down the Lord's own flock which was flourishing in Ireland. He says, Kuroticus, you are wicked, horrible. What you did is unutterable. Repent and return the captives. I mean, he's got, I mean, Kuroticus could kill him, but he doesn't care. He's not afraid of anything. And so this is the story of Patrick. Now, Patrick, he also struggles a lot with self-doubt. Uh, if you read his, um, his confession, he's always saying, ah, oh, my Latin's no good. And oh, I'm not very educated. And there's people that, uh, reminding Patrick that he's not educated and they're kind of making fun of him back in, in Britain. And despite all that, Patrick keeps doing what he knows that God has wanted him to do uh, because God has called him to this. And so that's Patrick, that's his story. And what I want to do is just give you an opportunity. Does anybody have any um, questions or comments before we kind of look at Patrick and the life of a pilgrimage in our, in our remaining time? Any questions or anything that steps out or that jumps out to you? How did he die? How does he die? Yeah, yeah we're not sure. Uh, like, I don't, he didn't die a violent death. He died, um, there's different speculations of how old he was when he died. I think he died in his 70s, uh, which is pretty old in the 4th century, in the 5th century. So, um, yeah, he didn't die a violent death, did he um, unlike a, a lot of other people. Yeah. Merle? Did he have a mentor? No, he didn't. He didn't have a mentor. And that, yeah, he, do, he doesn't have a mentor. And uh, it, that's what makes him, well, hang on, I say that. But then when he's on the continent, we don't know how many years he's on the continent. Now, there is some speculation that he went to this one monastery and he was educated there. But against that, he's yet Patrick always lamenting about how poor his Latin is. And it's like, well, was he educated or not? And so that's, that, those are the missing years we don't know. And some scholars say he was educated on the continent. And some people say, no, he just went back to Britain. I'm not sure. I, I could see it going both ways. Um, the fact that he's always lamenting about how uneducated he was tells me that maybe he didn't receive education on the continent. But, well, but I'm not sure. Did he do any other writings? Besides no, the two you talked about? No, those are the only two that we know for sure. I mean, his, uh, the, the breastplate of St. Patrick is attributed to him, but I think it's more in the tradition of Patrick rather than being his actual writings. We just know those two, his confession in that letter as being the only thing that survived from him. Now, now saying that, though, um, you have to remember what I said about the Irish and their storytelling and their accuracy. And so you do have stories of Patrick after the fact. and. Um, you know, what are, are those, um, do they tell a lot of the, the story of Patrick? Possibly. And uh, they, they may be part of his story. They may be genuine. Uh, it's, it's hard to know. Why did the king not retaliate when he received the letter? Yeah, that's a good question. 
Why did he not retaliate? Maybe when, maybe it was a work of the Holy Spirit that convicted him. I mean, sometimes when a person who's got so much courage and who's burning with the Holy Spirit speaks truth into a person's life, um, the Spirit cuts to the person's heart. Now, we don't know if Kurodika said, all right, I feel really bad, but too bad I already sold them. Um, or if he actually returned them, we don't know. We don't know what happened. What I'd like to do is um, look a little bit. Uh, any other questions? Um, what I'd like to do is look a little bit at Patrick and the life of the pilgrim and what this teaches us. And so let me, I'm just going to share our screen again. Because um, I just got a couple thoughts on this. Okay. So here we go. Um, what, do we, what does this teach us? Well, I think uh, one of the things it teaches us is that um, pilgrims know that there's a deep connection between calling and courage. I mean, the reason why Patrick was as courageous as he was is because God clearly called him. He was, he was completely sure that God had called him into this. And it's because of that, he was able to live with um, what some one person calls a sense of holy indifference. Um, he was indifferent, not in the sense, I don't care, but in the sense that, you know what, this is what God's called me to do. So I'm not afraid of anyone. Kuroticus, I know you're a big, tough tribal leader, but I don't care. And the thing is, if, if, if you know that God has called you, that gives us all sorts of courage in the, in the Christian life, in our pilgrimage. Um, you know what? Uh, when uh, Patrick was at home, what part of the story is that uh, he was betrayed by a friend, by a very close friend. And, and that would have really done a number on him, except for the fact that he was so sure that God had called him to, uh, to Ireland. Even though people said, well, Patrick, you're not really educated enough to go to Ireland. He says, you know what? God has called me, so I have to go. And I think one of the questions I want to ask you is um, what areas of your life are you being tested in right now? And how does God's call to follow Jesus empower you to face those challenges? I think that's a, that's a really important question. The other thing is... Um, the other question is, is what area of your life right now do you need courage? Where do you find your courage lacking? Second point is pilgrims know that their battle is spiritual. Uh, they recognize their need for prayer, their need for uh, spiritual protection. One of the things that Pastor Mark uh, always asked us as staff whenever we come on staff is, is, do you have people praying for your protection, your spiritual protection? And uh, do you have people praying for you and your family um, that pray for protection? I have a friend of mine who's, who's in England who, uh, who I know prays for me regularly. And I, another friend of mine in Boston and different people. Um, this is really important. Do you have somebody who's praying for you? Um, a, a pilgrim takes into, takes into consideration the reality of the spiritual world. Um, you get these stories of these power encounters with the Druids um, and the spiritual world is, is, is so real. I remember talking to a buddy of mine um, who is uh, doing work in Indonesia and uh, he was saying, you know, the spiritual world in Indonesia is, is, is so real. Like it's, it's, it's so real. Our friends of mine who are, uh, who are in Africa and just talking about spiritual warfare, uh, how real that is. And it always reminds me because I think the uh, the evil one has different strategies in different places, and the the strategy in places like in the global south is full on spiritual warfare. Where I think in the west, the strategy of the evil one is twofold. One is he, he wants us to think that he doesn't exist, and secondly, he wants us to fall asleep spiritually. I think that's the strategy here, and so we need to know that uh, the the spiritual battle is real, and a pilgrim knows that the spiritual battle is real. Patrick knew it, right? Um, a, a pilgrim expects to find um, battle, uh, opposition on the mission field. And they need to know, uh, they need to have wisdom when to run and when to stay. Um, yeah. 
The other thing about pilgrims is they need to know uh, God's strength is re revealed in our weakness. I mean, Patrick, he was honest. He wasn't the superstar. He, uh, he wasn't that educated. Um, he's, he, um, he struggled quite a bit at home, you know, with people uh, questioning his, uh, his uh, fitness to be, a, uh, to be a bishop or to go over to, uh, to Ireland, to be a missionary, to be an evangelist. Uh, but Patrick, in his weakness, uh, God used him tremendously. And so pilgrims know that our strength lies in God and not in ourselves. And pilgrims pray and love God's word. And one of the things that's fascinating when you read Patrick's confession is how many times he quotes scripture. He quotes the Old Testament, the New Testament. He's all over. And he knows the Bible inside and out. And so he's learned it. He's learned it. Uh, which, again, is kind of interesting because this is late 300s, early 400s, and he's a pretty thorough understanding of the Bible, which tells us how um, that, you know, the, the people had access to the scriptures at that stage. And now one thing, uh, once the Irish get hold of the Bible, I mean, they don't let go. And if some of you may be familiar with the Book of Kells or the Lindisfarne Gospels, but... Uh, the Irish, they love the word of God and they, they copy it and they copy it and they copy it and they study it and they copy it. And so they become very strong proponents of God's word. But Patrick, he's, he's soaked in God's word and it just, uh, it just comes through in everything he has to say. Half, half of the things he says, he's, he's weaving scripture into, into what he's writing. So it's quite powerful. Um, and they pray. I mean, it, it, Patrick, the fact that he's able to pray the way he did is a testimony to you know, the impact um, of what he had learned as a kid, even though he didn't think it was still there, it was there and it taught him how to pray. And the other thing is pilgrims leave footsteps that can be seen for some time in which others can follow. And, and one of the things that Patrick leaves is this um, tremendous uh, impact of Celtic uh, Christianity. And um, it, it is remarkable. Um, th there's, a, there's a book written by a guy named uh, Tom, Thomas Cahill, uh, called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Has anybody ever read that or heard of that? See some people nodding, no? Now, Cahill's Irish, so he's gonna, you gotta take what he says with, you know, pound of sugar, pound of salt, not sugar. Um, but uh, he can tell a story. But his, his, his main thesis is that um, it's because of the Irish uh, saved Western civilization because when much of uh, Western Europe fell into darkness is being overrun by these barbarians, way up in these outposts of Western Europe that no barbarian even feels like going to. Like, it's, it's that miserable and rainy. It's, it's like coming to Vancouver in the winter. Um, and it's, it's just terrible, like um, just in the outskirts of society. And uh, the Irish, while all Western Europe was falling into um, destruction, you have these Irish who are busy in copying the scriptures. And they're, they're, their native language is not Latin. So they're taking the Latin scriptures, the, uh, the Latin Vulgate, and, and copying it and copying it and copying it and copying it um, and, and preserving scripture when all the West was falling into darkness. And so Cahill says that uh, the Irish during this time, they, they helped save civilization by maintaining the integrity of God's word. Way often these, these God-forsaken... <laughs> but obviously not God forsaken uh, outposts of, uh, of Ireland. And, um, and the legacy of, of, of Celtic Christianity is tremendous, not just in terms of the word, but in terms of evangelism, there are some evangelists that come out of the Celtic stream that basically lead to the conversion of much of Northern Europe. Um, you look at all the guys like uh, guys like Columba, um, St. Aidan, um, and one fellow named um, Columbanus. And Columbanus, is, uh, he's, he's one of my favorite fellows. Uh, does anybody, anybody ever hear of Columbanus before? No? Yes? No? Uh, Columbanus, is a, he's just after Patrick. And um, uh, apparently he's a, he was a good-looking fellow, kind of a strapping fellow. And a lot of the ladies kind of liked him. And, and uh, he went and he spoke to... Um, this uh, female hermit said, what should I do with my life? And, and this is what she says to him. She goes, away, O oh youth, away, flee from corruption. And uh, just go off and commit your life to Jesus. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to do that. Uh, the only problem is, is his mom was not too keen about that. Like, I don't want you leaving home. 
and Columbana says, I have to leave home. And his mom says, no, you cannot leave home. And the mom actually stands in the doorway, says, you shall not pass. And the story goes that Columbanus takes a running jump and he leaps over his mom and, and runs and never looks back and uh, becomes this uh, tremendous uh, missionary. He sets up all these, um, uh, he sets up, I think, between 60 to 80 monasteries. And he has all these power encounters. Have you ever heard of Broomhilda? Uh, takes on Broomhilda, takes on all these uh, leaders. He's, he has no hesitation to call out the Pope and say all sorts of mean things about the Pope when he thought it fit. And he would call out bishops. So he's always making enemies, but he's also making a lot of people following him. And uh, he's this tremendous evangelist. And uh, Columbanus ends up uh, converting so much of, of Europe to, uh, to Christ because of uh because of his courage and he's in the footsteps of um of patrick um one of the things that um that it means to be a pilgrim and i think this is important is that um pilgrims are willing to tell other people about jesus and and they're willing to tell it's, it's it's a very difficult it's a very difficult context because they're telling pagans who really don't want to hear anything about jesus and are more than likely to kill you than anything else and yet these celtic christians are not afraid and uh it's interesting not only do they share the gospel in word but they also share the gospel in deed and in power encounters and so there's many stories of miracles there's many stories of um of uh of these mysteries and miracles that go along with sharing the gospel and that's what wins over a pagan world so one of the questions i have i want to oh shoot we're almost eight o'clock are you guys okay with an extra five minutes yeah Okay, because I like to, oh, I'm going to break into one more group because I want to ask you this one question, if you guys are okay with this. It's a really important question. Um, you know, Patrick, he, he shares the gospel in word and in deed and, uh, and willing to put God to the test and say, and have these showdowns, kind of like Elijah, um, and these showdowns with the pagan gods and saying, well, all right, let's see who's going to come out on top. In our age today, here in the Lower Mainland, what role does miracles and the supernatural have in winning people over for Christ in our current context? The question again is, what role does, does um, yes, we, we proclaim the word, but what role does, does um, experiencing God, miracles, um, uh, the supernatural uh, power encounters play to reach people for Christ today? Good. Yeah. One of the few things about Ireland is it's still one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have abortions. Ireland. They do now. They yeah, just they passed do it. Now. They just passed it. Yeah. Just passed it, huh? Yeah. Well, for the longest time it was. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. No, it's true. That's an interesting, uh, and I mean, this is an aside, but Irish, Irish uh, Catholicism is always being very different from Roman Catholicism. It's got its own flavor to it. And I think that goes back to this Celtic Christianity. I mean, they, they fought, I mean, there's a long story. There, there, there was a big showdown between Roman Catholicism and Celtic Christianity. And it comes to a showdown in uh, 664 AD, the Council of uh, the Synod of Whitby. And uh, basically, Irish uh, Christianity joins the Roman Catholic Church, but it, they've always been kind of independent. In Celtic Christianity, my goodness, they were—it's—it's uh, it's very fiery. So let me hear some of your thoughts, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Um, any thoughts about uh, how to reach people in the Lower Mainland? Do we do we go full on St. Patrick, or is there a different thing that's required, or what do you guys think? Well, in my life, David, I walk the walk. People know where my faith is. They know where I'm coming from. And they know that my Christ is real. Right. He's a okay. living God. He hasn't died. He came down off there. So they know from my experience that uh, he's a living God. Okay. 
Good. Okay. So how how you live your life and what you say um, speaks volumes. Yep. Good. Good. Others. Recently. If you uh, uh, walk the talk, that's right. That's the right saying. People should know whether you're walking with the Lord. They yeah. should know. You should not to, shouldn't have to proclaim it. No. Your neighbor should know. Your friends should know that you are uh, 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 walking the right side of the street. Yeah. Well, what about the idea of? Um of the uh, of the supernatural, that's that's the question I'm getting at. Like, um, what, what is that something to to win somebody over? Is the, uh, the the role of the supernatural, the role of the miraculous? I mean, we spend we spend a lot of time just trying to convince people. Hi. Okay. So, question: Do is would you say that like the supernatural is like the exception? It just doesn't really happen that often. Well, that's a good question. It doesn't seem to happen too much in the West. Now, why is that? That's a bigger question. Is it because we really don't think God will do the miraculous? Um, because I know people who go, um, who, who visit the Global South. I mean, this is a daily occurrence. I mean, there's some major things that are going on. Like the spiritual world is as real as anything you see here and but here we're like you know so is it our own hesitancy or is it a different context i don't know i think it's a but it's i think it's an important question to ask especially when we look at evangelism is that we don't recognize it when it's here maybe that's a lot of it i think that i think that people and someone in our group mentioned this people expect the miracles to be the big in your face thing there's a lot of little miracles that maybe in the West, we don't say it's a miracle, but it is. Uh, I mean, I is think, it, go ahead, Lori. I was just going to say, I think also uh, th there's this uh, idea in the West that we are too sophisticated. We're too sophisticated to believe that, that those kinds of things happen. I think there is a sense of that. Some people think, oh, that's pretty woo woo. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. But I, you know, in, in answer to your question, you know, do you say anything when I've, I've had a few things that have happened and I've actually told people, I, I, I do tell people who are non-Christians and, you know, um, a couple of experiences, um, a few experiences that I've had and, um, yeah, I don't care. I just tell them. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I think it's interesting because what, one of the characteristics of the Western world or the modern world is that, um, God is eclipsed, right? Um, God is, uh, we have everything we need, right? We have lots of technology. We have everything. So we don't really need God in the same way. I mean, we do, but you know what I'm saying? And uh, I think that's, that's one of the factors that makes us downplay. We will talk more about, you know, why God makes sense or we'll use apologetics and those sorts of things. But I wonder if uh, for, um, to reach our, our, our world today, if, if there's more in common with Patrick's pagan Ireland than we realize. Uh, it's just, 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 just something to think about, right? Uh, let me just leave you with two last thoughts. Um, one of the things about a pilgrimage, uh, pilgrims, they need community. And um, one of the things that happens is Patrick, he leads all these um, tribal leaders to Christ. And, uh, and then he sets up these monasteries, right? Now, typically, a monastery would have 50, 60, 70 people in it. We know in Ireland, in the 5th, 6th, 7th century, that the average monastery has 2,000 people in it. So what is going on? Well, what's going on is that it's not just these monks joining, it's the entire village. The entire village basically becomes a monastery. And so it's the entire community. And you have an entire generations of um, young people who are educated uh, by these, these monks. And there's a, it's, there's a real village feel to it. And it's interesting, um, later on, one of the, uh, the, the head of the Holy Roman Empire, a guy named Charlemagne, his right-hand man, his main advisor, was a, um, was a captured Celtic monk. And uh, he was, uh, it's just quite interesting. That, that sense of learning runs very deep. Last thing is that pilgrims, 
will follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Now, this may be a myth or it may not be a myth. It's hard to know. Um, but the, uh, the Celtic image of the Holy Spirit was not just a dove. There was another image of the Holy Spirit. Does anybody know what it was? It wasn't the shamrock, was it? No. That's a picture. Is it the holy clover? Uh, nope. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Barry, do you know? <laughs> Putting you on the spot. The, it's not a dove. It's the image of the wild goose. And so we today know this expression, what is a wild goose chase? A wild goose chase is something that you chase and it's kind of useless because you'll never actually achieve what, it'll just spin you in circles and you'll never get where you need to go. But a wild goose chase in a Celtic Christian understand, the wild goose was the image of the Holy Spirit. And the wild goose chase meant that you were to try to keep in step with the Spirit, recognizing that God is not a tame lion but he will go as the wind directs. And yet when you and I follow him, when we embark upon a wild goose chase, um, we, uh, we, we learn to walk in accordance to the Holy Spirit. Now there is some question about, is that, is that a myth or is that, but there is, a, I've read a couple um, books on that, on, on the whole idea of the wild goose. But anyhow, I just thought it was kind of a cool thing. Because what these guys do is they do follow the Holy Spirit. In Celtic Christianity, they're, they're known for um, being wayfarers. And so you get stories of these Celtic missionaries uh, getting into boats and throwing away the oars and saying, oh, Lord, direct me wherever you want me to go. Wherever the wind blows, I will go. And uh, it's, they're quite remarkable stories. A guy named Brandon who, uh, who uh, ended up on a, a small um, a cor- was it coracle, is that what it's called? A uh, little boat uh, making his way to uh, Greenland. Um, yeah, just amazing stories. Anyhow, so that is Patrick. Patrick, I think, can teach us a lot about evangelism, teaches a lot about pilgrimage, what it means to follow God in very difficult circumstances. Next week, we're going to look at the one fellow I probably have studied way too much of, uh, probably, yeah, way too much of, is uh, John Newton in the 18th century. And we're going to talk a little bit about spiritual dryness, how to navigate our way through spiritual dryness. And what does Newton have to teach us in that? And I think that'll be a lot of fun. But any questions before we wrap up? Sorry, we went a little bit over time. Yeah, David. Yeah. Uh, was there any truth to the uh, story that uh, Patrick taught the uh, Trinity uh, by use of the uh, clover? Um, I mean, there's a tradition that says that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in most, uh, stained glass depictions of Patrick, he is holding a shamrock and it is, you know, to, to teach the, uh, meaning of the, uh, three and one and the one and three. And there is a strong Trinitarian side within Celtic Christianity, but beyond that, I don't know. So I, I know that it's associated with, with, uh, with Patrick, that story of, 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 of explaining the nature of the Trinity by using the, uh, the shamrock. And again, it is shown in, 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 in depictions of, of many. If you, if you Google Patrick um, and the stained glass, it's, he's always got a shamrock. And I think, so yeah, I, probably there's something to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Irish triads at all? Uh, as in mafia or? No, there was that, they had uh, Druidic write, uh, writings called triads and they had, um, some Trinitarian beliefs in their triads. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. They had a prophet called Hugh Gadarin uh, the Mighty. Oh, interesting. Their, their prophet. Well, I know. I mean, one of the characteristics that sets uh, Celtic Christianity um, apart is its emphasis on Trinitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a strong, you know, and you read them, Patrick's uh, breastplate. Um, it's very, you know, by, I bind unto myself this day the strong name of the Trinity. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's rich in that sense. OK, so thank you so much, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. And let me conclude in prayer and then uh, we will see you next week. OK, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Patrick and thank you for how he 
can teach us what it means to be a pilgrim and to follow you. And uh, we do pray that, um, that we would live our lives uh, intentionally, um, recognizing that we're not just wandering, but we are heading to our, um, to our glorious home. Uh, we're, we're, our, our life is oriented towards coming home. And we pray that we would practice your presence in whatever situation that we find ourselves in. So we commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.